to That Could Work on a Mission Field, a podcast of Mission Nation Publishing. This is Sarah Siang. Here we highlight and speak with missionaries to America about the very present and growing mission fields that exist across the nation. Join us to learn from these missionaries as they push forward to spread the good news of Jesus Christ in their diverse communities. We're joined by William Utek um, of the Minnesota South District. He is the mission executive. Um, I'm very glad to be joined by you today. Well, it's great to be here, and uh, thanks for the invitation. This yeah. should be fun. Yes, it should be. Now I'm looking forward to our conversation. I grew up in north central Wisconsin in a town of 10,000 where uh, where uh, every other person that I met on the street was a member of a Lutheran Church, Missouri Ascended Congregation. So it was a very Lutheran, very German community. Grew up there, went uh, to uh, uh, Lutheran grade school, uh, but public high school. And from there, went to Concordia St. Paul, right? And uh, did undergrad there in, uh, in uh, uh, getting ready to go to the seminary. Uh, after I got my undergrad degree, moved to St. Louis and became a student at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, we were, uh, right before Vicarage, I got married to a, a, a wonderful, beautiful woman who was also a family physician. And uh, we went out on Vicarage in, in Cleveland, Ohio, came back. I had one year to do. She got in a residency. She had three years to do. So mm-hmm. I uh, did some postgraduate study. And uh, it was in 1987 that we, we blew out of town. Uh, we left St. Louis for uh, the, the Twin Cities area. My first call was to Bloomington, Minnesota, and served there for nine years before being called back to the seminary as a faculty member and director of resident field education. And we lived in St. Louis uh, for 17 years. And then God called us back to Minnesota so that I could become the mission executive for the Minnesota South District. And uh, it's been a thrill ride all along. How long now that you've been uh, as the mission executive? Uh, seven years and change. It okay. will be, uh, it will be uh, eight years the end of this summer. I see. Let's, let's talk about, you know, the landscape of the Minnesota South District. So mm-hmm. what areas are, are you, you covering? What are the demographics? Just so we can kind of have that understanding. Sure. Uh, the, well, the Minnesota South District comprises the whole of the metropolitan area around Minneapolis, St. Paul, around the Twin Cities. So it's the whole of the metro area, which has uh, got a population of around 3 million, right? Uh, and then the southern third of the state, which includes a population centers like Mankato, Minnesota, and uh, Rochester, Minnesota, Winona, Minnesota, Austin, Minnesota. So it's uh, uh, the the lower third of the state plus the metro area, which can and the district is made up of about 240 congregations. So if people have not been to the Twin Cities in in a while. Uh, uh, right in uh, South Minneapolis, we have, in the Phillips neighborhood, we have the most diverse uh, neighborhood in the United States. It's called the Phillips neighborhood. And in that one neighborhood, there are over 100 different languages that are spoken. And most people who grew up in the, in the Midwest, especially the upper Midwest, would not expect that. Sure. But that's what's going on. It yeah. really is quite mm-hmm. incredible. And right. it, it, it goes to the other uh, 
uh, cities in in uh, in southern Minnesota as well. Wherever there are entry level jobs is where immigrants and refugees show up. So we will have uh, small small cities, small large towns, small cities that have an incredible number of non Anglo people uh, right. working working in and around them uh, mm. because that's where some. Uh, agricultural entry-level jobs can be can be had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, incredibly diverse. So, um, what what are some of the more prominent um, ethnic groups uh, in the Twin Cities? Let's say I know that's a big area. So, what are the more prominent groups that you have there? Uh, the, probably the most numerous uh, uh, non-Anglo group would be the the Hispanics or the Latinos. Okay, uh, close mm-hmm. to two hundred forty thousand. Uh, there, then you also have around 100,000 uh, Hmong mm-hmm. uh, immigrants from Southeast Asia. Uh, we have around 85,000 Somalis. In fact, they say, you know, the, the only place in the world where there's more Somalis is Somalia. <laughs> and then, uh, let's see, we have uh, Ethiopian refugees, Sudanese, okay. Ethiopian immigrants, Sudanese refugees. So wow. um, in, in our... Uh, in our little town, well, it's not a little town, it's a good-sized town of Austin, Minnesota, down by the border with Iowa, that is a town where, um, where there's a lot of uh, meatpacking going on, and uh, uh, it, att- it attracts, and there's entry-level jobs there, it attracts immigrants, mm-hmm. and I was told a year ago by people who work in the school system there, that of the 52 countries that make up uh, that you can find on the continent of Africa, 50 of them are represented in little Austin, Minnesota. It's kind of like out of all places, you know, Austin, Minnesota, right. Or even just Minnesota in general. Right. right. I've always thought about that. It's like, like you mentioned, you know, why are these immigrants coming here? And you mentioned, of course, the job opportunities, but then it just continues because, you know, um, as you mentioned, the the Hmong population, right? I'm Hmong and I have mm-hmm. lots of relatives up there. So once roots are planted, then everybody that comes after them, of course, are going to go there as well. Yeah, they're so going to just I grows. Mean, the family kind of holds things together, especially mm-hmm. when you're first and second generation uh, immigrants. Absolutely. So you need yeah. that you need that network of support. Right. Because you haven't had a chance to build that up over a, a significant number of generations. So that and the and the weather, I'm sure. <laughs> I know. It's got to be the weather. Speaking of the, the diversity and the range of ethnic groups, um, how have you seen that reflect um, changes in, in how your congregations operate? And, and what's the makeup of your congregations in the Minnesota South District right now? Well, right now, I mean, uh, religious demographers have been saying for some time that the most segregated hour in in the United States is ten o'clock on Sunday morning. So, uh, and that's true. Certainly, in in our congregations in our district, we are primarily ninety five percent, if not more, uh, white uh, Lutheran worshipers. And uh, much to our shame. Our, our congregations, especially in the urban area, have not been particularly uh, quick uh, to build relationships with the people who've moved into their neighborhood. Uh, oftentimes, especially in our urban congregations, you have a white population that doesn't live there anymore, that doesn't live in the neighborhood. Uh, so they drive into the old church building for worship on Sunday. And when that's done, they drive back out to where wherever they're living. Right. And there's little or no 
community building between the church sure. and the surrounding neighborhood. Right, right. And that's unfortunate mm. because right now we have small declining congregations in our urban area and our, in our, of course there are exceptions to this, but generally we have, we have small declining congregations, urban first uh, ring suburb, second ring suburb, even we, we need some creative leadership and some entrepreneurial thinking uh, sure. by our, by our leaders in order to re-engage their community uh, in not only in word, but in deed so that, so that people can see that we're loving mm-hmm. in the name of Christ. And then when they ask us why, then we'll have a reason to, to tell them, to speak to them the gospel, hopefully in ways that they can hear. Right. Absolutely. We talk about that, that disconnect um, with the surrounding neighborhood of, of a church. Right. And, and you also mentioned um, the declining churches, right? And these congregations that are struggling, um, maybe because of that disconnect and other reasons too. Um, but we we talk about this kind of um, idea of, of what a healthy church is, right? So, you know, in your context, especially in the Minnesota South District, what is a healthy church? Um, I think we often think of um, Finances are good, right? Mm-hmm. We have enough people coming. The building looks all right. It looks like it's in good we, condition. We can support a full-time pastor. Yes, we can support a full-time, full-time pastor. pastor right? We look we look healthy, right? But but what truly is um, a healthy church? Well, I th- I think a healthy church is a is a church uh, as my colleague here in the in the district office is often saying is that understands why it exists. It knows it knows mm-hmm. why. Right. Uh, uh, it has been, it, God has made it the church. The church is not a place. The church is not a where. The church is people. The church is always a who. Mm-hmm. And and wherever the people of God go, there goes the church. There goes the church along, right along with it. And if, if the people of God, if the church understands why they exist, then there's a better chance that they'll they'll actually be the church where God has right. planted them. And that means that, that uh, they're not only faithful in terms of, you know, uh, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and they're not only Christ-centered, uh, they're not only uh, uh, preaching the word and administering the sacrament faithfully, uh, but they're also bearing fruit. So I think uh, faithfulness is the first part and fruitfulness is the second part. Sometimes uh, when, I mean, God is the one that, that, that gives the increase, but it's the congregations that are actually working on fruitfulness in, a, in, a, uh, in an organized, intentional way, where they are um, uh, intentionally engaging the mission field. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the congregations, I think, that, that are healthy. And, and it's, you can always, no matter where your, your congregation is or how healthy it is right now, there's there's still time to change your behavior and to change the way you think about things. Uh, so there's always hope. Right. And and how have you seen um, churches who maybe were on that declining end and were suffering? Um, how have you seen changes in becoming that healthy church and becoming maybe a more 
uh, outwardly focused church to build upon, like you said, in faithfulness and that um, you're no longer just a church to worry about yourself inside, but Mm -hmm. now outreaching to everyone around you in the present mission fields that are in, in that area. Yeah. Well, we've had, we've had a congregation, like there was a, there was one of our, our smaller aging congregations uh, down in Austin, Minnesota, that actually had devoted, they had voted to close. They were older, they were tired, there wasn't too many of them anymore, and they just didn't want to keep on going. Thankfully, uh, just outside of Austin, there was a, uh, like six miles away is a rural congregation that was kind of heading in that same direction. And they said, well, pretty soon, we're going to be in the same place as you are. Why don't we become a dual parish? Why don't we partner together? Why don't we become a dual parish? And then we'll call somebody who actually has uh, uh, an understanding of cross-cultural ministry. And then we'll call him to be our pastor and to, to do outreach and to build relationships uh, on the east side of Austin, where all of these immigrants are living. Uh, that's how we got a, uh, that's how we got an Ethiopian pastor from, uh, from Southern California to move to Southern Minnesota. And so this, you have two Anglo congregations pastored by uh, a, a man who was who was born in Ethiopia. And it's, it's that kind of, it's, it, it's that kind of risk taking consecrated risk taking. Uh, we do it not just for our sake, but for the sake of the people in our community who don't know Jesus yet. Mm-hmm. Those are the congregations that, that, that I applaud that I, I'm so thankful for. And that really do uh, humanly speaking, have a chance at making it. We've had congregations uh, take out mortgages against their buildings so they would have the wherewithal to start a new ministry in their in their community that actually blesses the community, brings people from the community in so that uh, the pastor and the people there have a chance to get to know them and build relationships with them and disciple them. And right. we've had any number of baptisms come out of that as well. And it's again, it's when we stop thinking about ourselves and the survival of our church, because it isn't our church, it's God's church. Mm. When we move from a survival mentality and scarcity thinking uh, to uh, valuing our neighbor and wanting what's best for our neighbor, when we take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on the neighbor, then, then, then we have a, a good way to go forward. Yeah. You know, you mentioned um, kind of the risk-taking factor, right? And um, honestly, when you say two Anglo congregations being led by an Ethiopian pastor, that sounds like a risk. I think that sounds like a risk to a lot of people. Right. Um, however, it's it's fitting for that context, and I'm sure it has shown to be fruitful. And maybe, oh, is this the right decision? I'm not sure, but maybe later on it's like really coming to terms and realizing how uh, fruitful that can be. That's not something common in the LCMS right now. What are your thoughts on that kind of dynamic, seeing leaders of color, you know, being influential in these spaces, um, especially as pastors, you know, do you see that value and do you see that growing and maybe becoming more common in the LCMS soon, especially in these areas Um that are so incredibly diverse, right? It's like, how do you right. mix the two? Right. You know, I, I, I really hope so. And that's what, that's what I personally am working toward is that we, we have leaders who can help us 
who, who can lead us across some of those cultural divides. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly if, if one of our leaders is a, is a 1.5 or second generation immigrant person, they have experience Right. Working between cultures, right? Yes. And yes. and that is the kind of experience and that's the kind of uh, understanding that that hopefully they can pass on to the people that they inherit in their congregation so that we're all of our eyes are opened and we all start learning those those things that we need to learn in order to make friends with people who don't look like us. <laughs> And, and, and really, that's what it's about. It's being willing to be a neighbor to someone who doesn't look like me or sound like me or have my same background. Right. We have a strategic partnership with Central American Lutheran Mission Society. And we, we partner up through comms. We partner up our congregations and congregations or communities down in Central America. And it seems sometimes it's easier f- for for us white people to fly to a different continent almost and engage the mission field there and get to know people there because, and, and feel completely out of place. We don't speak the language. We don't know the culture, but there's, there's people from comms who are cultural helpers for us, who are, who are translating for us. And and we learn how to be missionaries there and we learn how to love people there. Mm. And, and the missionary switch that's a part of all of us because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, right? That missionary switch gets flicked on in in Central America. And once it's on, it's very hard to flick off. So, mm-hmm. so our folks come back from that experience to their home congregations. And then all of a sudden, they see that there's a population of Latinos right in town mm-hmm. that they hadn't seen before. How about that? Mm-hmm. And, about that? <laughs> and so uh, the next thing you know, God's people are are behaving like God's people should, uh, not only in Central America, but but in their their own community, in their own yeah. context. Depending on where you are in the U.S., right, it may not be as culturally or ethnically diverse. But what are what are some pieces, you know, of advice that you could give to those churches that are wanting to do that more, but maybe they're not in as diverse as an area as the Twin sure. Cities, right? Well, one of the you know, I was I was blessed to teach uh, an SMP uh, cohort not too long ago, uh, specific ministry pastor cohort for Concordia Seminary. One of the books we read talked about how um, it's it's better instead of giving answers, it's it's better to ask questions because if you ask questions, you you if you write that if you ask the right question, the the answer can apply to all different kinds of contexts. So the, the questions are more important than the answers. And uh, I think a really good question for every congregation, every individual congregation to ask is, number one, where is Nazareth? And, and this, is, this is born out of, you know, when, when uh, Jesus is, is when, when Philip is bringing Nathaniel uh, to meet Jesus and Nathaniel says, can, it, can any, where is he from? Who is he? Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is that place in my community where there's really low expectations of those people or those are, those folks are forgotten people, or we, we just don't go to that part of town for whatever reason. Right. So where's Nazareth for you? Where's Nazareth for your congregation? Mm-hmm. Those people need Jesus. And uh, it, it, it may be, it, for a small town, it may be the folks who live in the trailer park, right? Mm. Or it may be the folks who live on the other side of the, of the tracks. Yeah. 
but every every town, uh, every community has has an, at least one Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And and then the second question is, what's your pain when you when you think about those people? What causes you? What causes your heart to break? What about that situation upsets you? What what about that situation uh, what, d- might bring a tear to your eyes? Uh, what about that situation do you feel driven to change? Uh, a lot of times, our people will go down to Central America, right, because they want to help those poor people down there who who don't have all of the conveniences that we have who are who are living in in uh, poverty who are living with unclean water who are living uh in uh in in a system of justice that is unfair if not outright corrupt so we have a heart for that as americans we have a heart for that we don't always understand it completely but we have a heart for that and we feel pain because of that mm-hmm. so uh, what is what is your pain when you think about the particular Nazareth in your community? And then finally, the third question that everyone can ask is, is what's in your hand? And that's born of uh, the call of Moses, right? When, uh, when God is calling Moses, he's speaking out of the burning bush. He's telling him to go down to Egypt, talk to Pharaoh, lead my people out of slavery. And Moses is throwing up one excuse after the other. And finally, God gets a little exasperated. He says, okay, what's in your hand, Moses? It's a shepherd's staff. Throw it down. And, and it becomes a snake. It becomes a sign that God is, is with and present with, with Moses, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and Moses uses what's in his hand to be about God's mission. So every congregation does have, is blessed in at least one particular way uh, to start being a blessing uh, to wherever their Nazareth is and whoever uh, makes up that population in Nazareth. So if you can answer those three questions, where's Nazareth? What's my pain? What's in my hand? Then that can lead you to be the church uh, to the people in your community who need the church the most. So with those questions, there are your answers, right? And again, the questions it looks, become the answers. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks different for every you know city, every congregation, but there's something there. There's always right. something there. Um, and I think that's the focus. You know, in closing, right? And we talk about we're, we're in this post-church, post-Christianity nation. Any final words for how you can encourage congregations to continue to be the church and to focus on the mission fields that are around them? I would, I would say that it is born of learning how to, to love like Christ loves us. I mean, he didn't hold anything back. Uh, he was for us uh, 100%. Uh, he who did not account equality with God something to be grasped. I mean, he, he left all that behind. And he came here to seek and to save what was lost. He, we have been blessed beyond measure. We can't run out of those blessings. There's never going to be a shortage of grace, of love, of mercy that comes from God. We have that in overabundance. And we have that going for us from now until he calls us home. We can't lose. We just can't lose. So it is out of that, out of that, I, I am a child of God. I am a, 
I am a, a, a son of the king. Uh, you are a daughter of the king. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. We have, we have the spirit of the living God uh, moving in us, living in us. Uh, we have everything we need uh, to, to be the church, to, to be part of the family business of making disciples of all nations, of seeking and saving the lost. And we got absolutely nothing to lose. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That Could Work on a Mission Field, a podcast of Mission Nation Publishing. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and learned something new today. Until next time, this is Sarah Siang. And remember, you are now entering the mission field.